0: Occasionally, when he was with others, occasionally, when he was on his own, from the deep source of his consciousness welled up moments of freedom and delight, so that, in anxious hope, but also already in dismay that this might be nothing but an ignis fatuus of his mind, he knew he was coming to life again. Then the war came. For three years, Thurn never set foot in Italy. But late in 17 he was on Lloyd George's staff at the Allies' Conference at Rapallo, when every day brought news of the Revolution in Russia, and when the Italians, defeated on the Isonzo and at Caporetto, were falling back. He travelled on to Venice, where his house, which he had taken for pleasure, abruptly became a useful headquarters, ahead of the eight French and British divisions sent to the Venetian hinterland to help shore up the new defensive line along the river Piave. When one more defeat would have knocked Italy out of the war for good. Here, on his left hand, loomed the Church of San Marquolo, massive and lightless. No, he saw. Someone was opening the door. A chink of lamplight showed and was gone. Children skirmishing on the water steps in the gloaming, a gnarled and now leafless wisteria pergola over a jetty, a boatman's shout. Wonderful. Soon he'd be drawing abreast of the Venier family house, so beautiful, so in need of repairs, so well-loved by all that family. And it was dear to him, too, on account of happy evenings over the years, and particularly on account of evenings last winter when, with the front line only a few miles north of the lagoon, you heard the bombardments when they started up. That time, when a Hungarian division had crossed the Piave Delta, which was a good deal less than twenty miles away, he'd been at dinner with Giacomo and Valentina Venier. They'd promised him, over the fish soup, that if their city fell to the Emperor of Austria's armies again, as it had in 1848, he wasn't to worry. For them to have one of his Britannic Majesty's envoys to hide in their attic till the war was over would be nothing but a pleasure. Well, praise God they'd held the line at the river— he thought buoyantly, revelling in the soft slap and lap of the water against his black hull, in the creak of the long oar, and even finding in the gull's desolate cries a note in harmony with his contentment to be back. That night, when four German battalions had fought their way across at Ponte de Piave, but the Italian counterattack had driven them back, and then for a change it was the defenders of their native land who were rounding up prisoners. What was more, if the line had been broken again, and if for some reason he hadn't been able to get away southward, it would have been delightful to roost in Giacomo and Valentina's attic and be cosseted by them. Yes, but was he the only man who suspected that this war might turn out to have been a pyrrhic victory? As he always did when he was cheerful, Thern started wondering vigorously. Had the war been a successful exercise in standing your ground, but an unsustainable injury too? What were the consequences of this long Armageddon going to be for Italy, for France, and above all for those British isles where he'd happened to be bred and which therefore he happened to love? Was anybody except him afraid that the last and greatest of the maritime empires run from an off-lying island with all the demographic and industrial weakness that entailed, might not be going to hold her own indefinitely against continental powers like America and Russia and Germany, even if the ruin of the last two of these gave the British a respite now. It would only be a respite. These were exactly the sort of speculations which, emerging in recent conversations at the embassy in Rome, had caused the ambassador to grin, and to tell him that, honestly, he was far too melancholy a fellow to be let loose to represent the country overseas. For that matter, this winter, when the fighting men started to come home and be met by hollering crowds, when the job was left to special envoys such as himself, were he and his like going to be Machiavellian enough to devise peace treaties that would be effective? Were they going to be resolute enough to enforce them for years and for decades? Was the war over? Or was this just a lull? How long would it be before the victorious alliance showed a few fissures? Well, he wouldn't sit brooding at home this evening. He'd go and find out what old Jacques Mulvenier thought about the victory, or thought about the mess the continent was in. He'd go to his own house now, he'd dump his kit, he'd have a wash and a drink, then he'd find out if Valentina and Giacomo felt like inviting him to dinner, or whether they'd rather he invited them. Looking up at the Venier house as he passed it, he saw a high window suddenly bloom with light, and a girl—it must be Gloria, the daughter—stand to gaze out at the dusk and the palaces and the boats. He waved but she hadn't seen him, or it was so nearly dark that she hadn't recognized him. Naturally, those immensely respectable Veniers would never know anything of the other delights this city held for him, Hugh mused, and smiled as his boat bore him on. No hint that, after the day-long expeditions with them on the lagoon and the merry family dinners, he might have himself rowed on elsewhere before going home. No stories of courtesans for the Veniers, heavens no!' What was it that procuring wretch, Tiziana Zuccarelli, had murmured to him the last time they'd seen each other? I want you to meet my sister Emanuela, who's just starting to sing some small parts at the Fenice. She's a real Tiepolo beauty, just your type. Something like that. As he swayed slowly on down the darkening waterway towards Rialto, his voluptuous mind filled with a chamber... A composite of a number he had known, where brocades shrouded a bed. The air was scented with potpourri, and before a gilt looking-glass, a young woman with Tiepolo skin and hair and eyes was beginning to take off her clothes. The sky over the grand canal cracked with brilliance. Thunder crashed. The schoolgirl at her bedroom window, Gloria Venier, caught her breath. "'Come and look!' she cried to her mother, who was behind her in the room, tidying away the ironed clothes that she herself ought to have been putting into the chest of drawers. "'I've never seen such lightning, Mama. Look, there it is again. It's silver-pink, and it's silver-violet, and—' Two "'Oh, the terms of the armistice on the Western Front are all right.' Speaking in Italian because, for years of peace and then of war, that had been the language of his friendship with this family, Thern frowned cheerfully down the length of the Sala of the Venier house, where the Murano chandelier shimmered inadequately above marquetry cabinets and carved ebony pageboys, and half the paintings were so far from the nearest lamp that only eyes familiar with them by daylight could make out what the compositions were. At the dining-table Giacomo and he had begun to tease out one another's thoughts about the victory and the peace, and now the cold, tenebrous drawing-room was suffused with how delighted they were to see each other and have time to talk. The storm that had battened on Venice all evening still showed no inclination to move away across the lagoon. Standing beside his host at the tall windows over the Grand Canal, which were trembling in their infirm frames as if they had St. Vitus's dance, Hugh broke off for a peal of thunder directly overhead. "'Heavens! I hope your chimneys are all right.' "'Yes, if anyone thinks we're being too harsh, they ought to remember the terms the Germans imposed on the French forty-whatever years ago after their last war.' For that matter, they could try to explain how we can stop Germany being her old self again in a few years, except by putting her army and navy out of action, or how in France they can feel halfway safe unless their troops and ours move forward to the Rhine and hold bridgeheads over it. No, that's not the problem. Oh, I say, Giacomo, thank you. What wonderful firewater is this? He raised his glass to his nose. Calvados! Giacomo Venier gave the decanter a gloomy, critical stare and said gruffly, "Well, it ought not to taste too bad. But what is the real problem in your view? The Austro-Hungarian Empire is finished." His voice suddenly grating with pride, he straightened his back till he was nearly standing to attention. Hugh chuckled at this dour rejoicing in the destruction of Venice's ancestral enemy. The potential problem is that Dan Kaiserbill's forces are surrendering to us in Belgium and in France, when possibly we should have taken the trouble to hound them out of there and finish them off, don't you think? Another fortnight, perhaps as little as another week, would have been enough to turn a defeat into a rout. All that's happened back in Germany so far is that they've heard they've lost some battles on the Western Front, the scale of this naturally being played down by their newspapers. And now they've heard that their lousy cabinet ministers and field marshals have rather rapidly acknowledged themselves beaten by this expedient inducing us to agree to negotiate, or rather, because we've had no need to negotiate, inducing us to state our terms.